Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an historian of intelligence and global security at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government and director of research at the Intelligence Project, as well as a regular contributor to outlets such as the BBC, Foreign Policy and the Washington Post. He's a world-leading expert in intelligence history, great power conflict, espionage and grand strategy. His new book, Spies, the epic intelligence war between East and West, builds on secret archives and exclusive interviews with former agents to tell the story of the century-long secret war between Russia and the West. Covering the period from the Russian Revolution to the present day, the book argues that espionage has been a key factor in shaping the course of history and continues to be a major threat to global security. Calder Walton, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. A major threat to global security or a major help for global security? Depends on, it's in the eye of the beholder, I would say. (laughs) It depends on which side you're on. So I think that espionage and the intelligence activities onslaught from China today and Russia against the West, they pose profound threats to national security. The threat from China in particular is an unprecedented threat. But of course, as you quite rightly ask, espionage done by Western powers, by Britain, by the United States, we, of course, recruit heroes in our own way, don't we? We don't recruit traitors. So it's in the eye of the beholder, as your question suggests. Mm. I want to go right back and find out how you got into all of this. So you are British, but you live in America. Tell us about your your background, because you qualified first as a barrister. That's right. Well, I'm a historian by training, and I was trained at Cambridge University, and I worked with Christopher Andrew, who's the founding father of this whole field of research. He wrote the now classic books on the history of the KGB and then the authorised history of MI5. When I started my master's at Cambridge, being supervised by Chris Andrew, he said, would you be interested in helping out with some part-time research on the official history of MI5? And I said, that sounds like quite an amazing opportunity. (laughs) So six years later, the book was published. And it was really, it was just a wonderful life-changing experience, really, to be honest. Mm. After my PhD, I trained as a barrister, worked as a barrister for four or five years, found out quickly that it wasn't really my passion. I was glad for the experience. So took a massive pay cut, and I'm back doing history, and I've never been happier. And this book is the result of six years of research. It's as old as my son, (laughs) so it feels like a child in many ways. But the motivation for writing it was living in the United States, living through the Trump-Russia saga and all of that, that we all experienced with that. And it was really trying to contextualize that. And there was this, at least in the States, a tendency in the media for, you know, this is unprecedented, we've never seen anything like this before, day after day. And it's like, well, actually, there's a very long history of what we're seeing here of election meddling by Russia the Kremlin doing this and then countermeasures as well and so I tried to contextualize it and then towards the end of my research the war in Ukraine made the book much more urgent for me in a very personal way I was using some Ukrainian archives one of the researchers there went off to fight in the war another of my researchers in Ukraine escaped and one of the researchers in Moscow is still there but she is doing everything she can to resist from the inside silently. 
So it became a very, very personal quest for me as we finished writing the book. It's an absolutely fascinating book. I mean, it's around about 600 pages. Yeah, it? so I know. It's, but it's, <laughs> it could have been twice as long. So there, I had a, sure. the benefit of a good editor who helped me cut it down. Every single bit of it is completely fascinating. Oh, and thank you. you have a website that, that actually you put a lot of the material you couldn't fit into the book. Yeah, that was something that I felt really strongly about of making the book interactive. So there are stories on there www.spieshistory.com that simply didn't fit into the book. And there's also interactive with, I found in some former Eastern Bloc archives from the Czech intelligence service, I found some actual bugged conversations from the 1960s. Now, I can't, I, I don't speak Czech, but I thought, I mean, it was just so eerie listening to them. These are private conversations between two or three people that were picked up by a microphone we don't know much about who they are. I've got the dossier of the people. And here are their private conversations that we're now listening to, and they were declassified by the archive for me in the book. It was too much to get into in the book, but I thought I'm just going to put one of those up on the website. And it really teleports you back to this private conversation between two people, otherwise obviously completely lost to history. But yeah. here you are. If any listeners can identify what they're talking about in the bug conversation on the website, please let me know. As you say, it took you six years to do this. But as with the book that you were researching at university, mm. how easy is it to gain access to this material? Obviously, yeah. there, there's archival stuff. But in terms of talking to people that work yeah. in espionage, yeah. I mean, their very job description means they can't speak to you. That's exactly it. No, it's a inherently difficult subject to research. So there's different levels. On the archival side... The British government is actually incredibly transparent with its past activities and there is now too much information to work with declassified at the National Archives. And some of the dossiers that I used on this, the stories that they tell, they could be straight out of an espionage novel themselves. You pick up the dossier, every page tells just a remarkable story. In the US, I went to every presidential library from the post-war period using archival papers there, weaving the story together. Russia was a more uh, difficult story, to say the least. I had a team of good researchers in Moscow who were helping me with records before the war started in Ukraine. But then since then, everything obviously has just closed down. So it's been a process of weaving together. Now, in terms of interviews, you're absolutely right. And the way that I conducted that... I always wanted to have at least two people confirming a story before regarding that as an established truth. This was a big, one of the book's big revelations, one of the big stories that caught the news in the US was a story that I got from interviewing two former, very senior US intelligence officers. And they revealed that in 2020, the Russian government was in the late stage planning of an assassination on US soil to try to assassinate a former Russian intelligence officer. So they were the Russian government was preparing to do a Litvinenko type assassination or again like Sergei Skripal here in Britain in 2018. Now this was I first got this from one source and this was you know I'm a mere historian I'm not an investigative journalist so this was really way out of, above my pay grade. But I did, I did know that I wanted to have at least another confirmation. So I 
in the US version of the book, I posed that story, that episode, as a question because I only had one source and I didn't feel confident enough. But between when the US edition of the book went to print at the UK that you've got in front of you, I got another source who confirmed the story. And in this edition, I have changed it to not being a sentence, but to be a statement of fact. And the New York Times got hold of the story and published a front page expose about it and said, we can confirm Calder's reporting, which was, it was pretty nerve wracking, as you can imagine, because I really nailed my reputation out there. But the story was too important to not be out there. The significance of the story is not, to my mind, the target. The target was a former CIA spy in Russian intelligence who provided high-grade secrets from inside Russia's intelligence services before 2010. And at that point, he was exfiltrated by the CIA to the US, much like, as you remember, Sergei Skripal, who the Russians tried to assassinate in 2018. So he was a former MI6 spy. This person at the center of this plot in the US was a former CIA spy. He'd been living under an alias, under protection, but the Russian government tracked him down. And the remarkable thing about this story is that throughout the Cold War and up until this point in 2020, there had always been a bright red line for the Kremlin and the US government, that the Kremlin throughout the Cold War would never, they would not conduct assassinations on US soil. This was a bright red line. Europe, different story. Britain, different story. But US soil, uh-uh, we're not going to go there. There was an unwritten agreement and Putin, in the run-up to 2020, according to my reporting, had been willing to cross that bright red line. And they were in the late-stage planning of this assassination on U.S. soil. And the assassination plot was caught by U.S. intelligence in its late-stage planning. So really a profound story about the murderous intentions of Putin in the run-up in that year or two just before the war in Ukraine. I mean, what the book does is also explain to us how Putin came to be. I mean, you go into the background of all the major secret services, but mostly the US, the Russia and Britain. Yeah. Britain's seen as a major player, even though so much smaller. And I mean, you say that the Russians were doing extraordinarily well. Britain was asleep back in the before the First World War. That's right. At key points, it's just absolutely remarkable. If you look at the records and the actual capabilities of the British intelligence services on the eve of the Second World War, I mean, I'm afraid they were effectively man and dog operations. Mm. And so this reputation that Britain had of this sort of all-powerful secret service with tentacles all over the world, that's much more in the realm of fiction than fact. It worked to their advantage, of course, you know, that British intelligence has this sort of mystique about it. But you're absolutely right. On the eve of the Second World War, I mean, the, the resources that the British intelligence I wouldn't even call it community because there was no cohesion the different services had were minuscule compared to, certainly compared to the Soviet intelligence services. Mm. So this was, as you said, effectively asleep. And then asleep also in the post-war years, as the Cold War started, once again, massive downgrading on the part of the British services. But they were doing, it has to be said, the UK was doing better than the US. America didn't even have a peacetime foreign intelligence service, the CIA, until 1947. Mm. So that two-year period after the end of the Second World War, before the creation of the CIA, 
America did not have a dedicated foreign intelligence service. It, I mean, it beggars belief in hindsight. There are some absolutely wonderful little kind of vignettes of people. I love all the little stories. I mean, there's the, the wonderful sort of political overarching narrative that you give us. But then you talk, for instance, about the first chief of MI6, Mansfield Cumming, who only had one leg and, I mean, it's just, and was the original C. That's right. C for Cumming. C, C for Cumming, C for chief, who signed his name on, on letters with green ink. And chiefs of MI6 still do that today, although I guess it's with an email signature, C in green. And he, you're absolutely right, had only one leg. The rumour was, the story was, that he hacked off his own leg in a road traffic accident during the First World War. So that gives you a little indication of the type of people. I mean, they, you know, they, you're absolutely right. The characters, they just leap off the page. And I mean, Arthur Ransom, the, the author of Swallows and Swallows Amazons, who, and... who was having an affair with Trotsky's secretary. As you do, right? As you do. Again, as I mentioned earlier, the dossiers on these people, you just open them and... You do not need to be a wonderful writer to tell the story because they just they tell themselves in many ways. You say that the fulcrum of the book is really the Second World War. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have a, a huge amount of time no. to, to sort of go yeah. into all of this. Yeah. But that was the birth then of the more global right. spy organisations, if That's you want. Right. But then where the book then comes to another break, if yeah, you like, a, yeah, a plot turning, point, yeah. would be what some people describe as the end of the Cold War. That's right. And your argument is it never ended. That's exactly right. In the West, in the early 1990s, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, this was the period famously, infamously, of the end of history. The Cold War was over, the Soviet Union ceased to exist. This was America's unipolar moment, where it was the number one. Cold War over. Well, it looks very, very different if you look at it from the perspective of the Kremlin. The Cold War was not over, and in particular, if you look through the eyes of Russia's intelligence services, which had a disproportionate power in the post-Soviet Russian government. They effectively became states within states. They continued to operate straight out of the KGB model. Indeed, they changed their names, but little else from their Soviet past. The Cold War, not only was it not over, but in fact, many of the key people in Yeltsin's government, and particularly in, in his intelligence services, were driven now with a sense of revenge, humiliation. And in, in my view, this just comes through again within the archival records and interviews I conducted with FSB officers who, driven by this humiliation, revanchist sense that the United States had interfered and caused the collapse of the Soviet Union, and this was an unfair defeat which needed to be corrected on the world stage. And it's exactly out of that bitter stew, if you like, that Putin emerges mm. to become director of the FSB. Putin, of course, has a KGB background, so he's exactly from this, that background. He becomes director of the FSB in 1998. And then, to everyone's surprise, he becomes Yeltsin's successor in the Kremlin at the end of the decade. And we can't criticise Putin for not being consistent. He has been very consistent in his message. If you look at his early speeches in the early 2000s, when, again, in the West, we were concerned with the global war on terror, overwhelming national security priorities of counterterrorism, Putin, after a brief honeymoon period of liaising with Western governments during the war on terror. Probably the wrong term to be, we shouldn't have said honeymoon, but I mm. think um, listeners will understand what I was trying to convey. 
period of liaison with Western services. In fact, his public speeches, Putin's public speeches, become increasingly hardened against the United States and saying this was an unfair security arrangement created in 1991, which needs to be corrected. And the vital interests of Russia in its place in Europe need to be confirmed. That was what his speeches, in particular the 2007 Munich security speech. If you look at that speech from 2007, it is basically the same as the speech he gave with President Xi of China on the eve of the war in Ukraine. Let's talk about China now, because are you right, as far as intelligence and national security are concerned, the United States is already in a cold war with China. And of course, China does seem to be, again, as you point out, pushing for this new world order. That's exactly right. And often, I think, Western commentators, there's a tendency to sort of say, oh, well, this is just rhetoric, you know, and this has been historically the case of when you have an autocrat giving his or her vision for the future. So, no, 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 they don't really mean that. That's rhetoric. That's just hyperbole. Turns out that often throughout history, no autocratic leaders really do mean what they say and they telegraph their messages. So when Putin and Xi created their alliance, their agreement of, quote, no limits on the eve of the war in Ukraine, with the vision for challenging and supplanting the American-led world order, they really mean what they're saying. So are we in a Cold War? I look at it very differently from the perspective of intelligence and national security. Unambiguously, yes, we're in a new Cold War. Like the first Cold War, the original one, it's guided by nuclear arsenals on both sides. It has to remain cold. We all must pray that it remains cold and doesn't turn hot. So that's a very different way of looking at it, which is, yes, it's a Cold War, But the alternative for a hot war between the United States and China, for example, over Taiwan, Taiwan, one can only imagine Mm. what that would be like. But China, in striving for this new world order, and I believe you're absolutely right, is taking along with it Russia, it's taking Iran, it's taking a lot of African states, it's possibly taking India. That's right. Which actually, interestingly enough, from a historical perspective, seems to me that there's actually an echo with the role of the so-called global south today with the first Cold War. So we now know from other people's research how other historians like Arne Westad, for example, has shown the Cold War, yes, was an east-west struggle between superpowers, but it was also a north-south struggle between the global south and and the north. And in particular, the efforts by both sides of the Cold War to influence the so-called non-aligned movement during the 20th century's Cold War. And my prediction is that the non-aligned governments, they're even calling themselves non-aligned governments, again, going forward in Africa and in Southeast Asia, will play an increasingly important role in this geopolitical standoff between East and West. And there will be similar efforts by Western governments and then Russia and China to influence them and to bring them with them in their new vision for the world order, as you just described. Mm. And I mean, I think we think that it's unthinkable. We like to think it's unthinkable that democracy could die, that the world would change. I mean, empires crumble about every 300 years. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, and then the, the key point to stress is that if you look at Putin's speeches before the start of the war in Ukraine and then, then after it, he looks at it completely differently, which is that... What they are representing is true democracy. 
that what America, the U.S.-led American world order, is not democratic because it doesn't take into consideration the views of countries like Russia and China. So true democracy is what they call themselves democracies. So it's going through the looking glass and looking at things. You know, things are upside down and they're up, you know, left and right and so on. Obviously, that's completely erroneous. But we have to be able to understand their perspective if we're going to actually come to some sort of living agreement with them. Because to be honest, the world is. I think we can all agree big enough for both the United States and China. And when you look at what else is happening on the planet as temperatures boil, we've got to find a way to be able to live together and not recreate the worst ventures of the 20th century again. Just we don't have a lot of time, but a lot of the book is also about double agents and people who were sort of clandestinely working for other people. And one thing I found sort of bizarrely comforting, I suppose, was that the Cambridge spying, the, the Cambridge Five. Yeah weren't recruited once they were in positions of power. They had always yeah. been dedicated communists. And for some reason, it made me feel slightly better about them. I don't know why. Well, I, th I think that's absolutely right. And I think the thing is, one has to begrudgingly admit, well, at least they had an ideological faith. Mm. And that was certainly the view compared to later infamous traitors in the US government, someone like Aldrich Ames, who was a Russian spy, Soviet spy working in the CIA. He had no ideology. He did it for money. And certainly the CIA said, looking back when they discovered Order James, looking back at the Cambridge spies, they effectively said, well, at least the Cambridge spies had no ideology. You have to give them that. They actually genuinely believed in what they were doing. And they weren't just guns for hire mercenaries. So there's a begrudging respect. I think I agree with you about yeah. the Cambridge Five. Finally, looking at where we are now, we've talked about China and, and what might happen there. But Ukraine is obviously the big spark point yeah. at the moment. And I just wonder how efficient the Western world is in knowing what's going on yeah. there. Well, I think that there's two different levels to, to answer that. Ukraine, from my perspective, the war in Ukraine represents something much bigger than just the war itself. It is about this geopolitical clash between East and West and the future direction of the world democracy or autocracies. How well do we know about what's going on? Well, I think that for me, watching the, the war in Ukraine start, the US and the British intelligence communities were spectacularly successful at uncovering Putin's war plans and then disclosing them in near real time, as you may remember, just before the war started, where the Biden administration and the UK said, this is what Putin is going to be planning to do. And that eliminated or reduced his ability to be able to concoct mm. excuses, pretexts for the war. That was an absolute striking intelligence success, something that you don't hear too much <laughs> about. That represents, I think, a really brave decision on the part of the Biden administration to disclose the intelligence that they had about Putin's war plans. Has that capability to understand Putin's intentions and capabilities disappeared? I think probably not. I would say that actually the US and British intelligence communities are doing extraordinarily well with mapping out what Putin has planned for Ukraine. Calder Walton, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I would absolutely urge everyone to read 
every single one of your 500 plus pages. Thank you so much. (laughs) Really, really interesting. And I think absolutely vital for us to get an understanding of how this all works. And you really, really did explain to me so many things. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Spies, the epic intelligence war between East and West is by Calder Walton and it's published by Abacus Books. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Tamsin Howard and Helmi Pillai. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.